Well, uh, we've started each week uh, of this series kind of asking the question or getting you to think about what comes second nature to you? What is it that you're really good at? And uh, we've kind of named some things in the room of people and, and maybe you've th thought of what you're good at, but we have people even here in our church that are just remarkable at different things. And I thought about this young lady that's in our youth group in Warehouse 247. Her name is Ella Beam. I got a picture of Ella here on the screen. This is, this is Ella. She is a senior in high school. And uh, I got to thinking about her this week, thinking of stuff that she's really good at. She is the four-time state champion. And get this, she is the only female that has ever done this in the state of North Carolina. And she goes right here to our church. Like, think about that for just a minute. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. Somebody that has just perfected the craft of wrestling. Like, she could take me out if she wanted to, okay? But here's the thing I want you to think about. We're all good at something. And when Jesus says to us, in Mark and Matthew and different places in Scripture, when Jesus says to us, love your neighbor as yourself, what he's really saying to us is, hey, if you're going to be good at something, be good at that. Be good at loving others well. And here's the thing. That is a tall order, right? That's a tough thing to do. But God doesn't leave us alone. He does something with us through that. We're not doing this in our own strength. That when we begin to follow Jesus, he gives us a second and better nature that empowers us to love others well, even those that hurt us and are difficult to love. So the question is, how do we get there? How do we get there? If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. We've been there the last few weeks. And I kind of want to ask this question, how do we get there? In fact, I, I came across something this week in my study. In fact, it was so late in my study. Uh, it actually happened Friday morning. I was up on a, on a mountain hiking and uh, just having some time with the Lord. And was actually listening to a sermon. And this pastor said something that I thought, man, I wish I'd have heard that phrase way, way back early in this series, because I feel like this is kind of the, the, the real, the best introduction I can come up with. This is not on your handout. If you want to write it down, these are good words here. And he was using it in the context of something else. But how do we get there? How do we get to a place of loving others well? This is a phrase I want you to remember. It, it's this. Hope doesn't change the way you love. Hope doesn't change the way you love. Habits change the way you love. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute because for a lot of us, we're hearing these messages, and including me. I'm, I'm writing these messages. I'm praying through these messages, and I'm feeling the conviction. I'm feeling the, man, I, I hope, I wish I could do a better job of loving people well. And there's this hope factor, this hope that I'll do better at that, Right? But it's going to take more than just hoping something. It's more than just hoping I become a better person. It's more than hoping I love people better. No, it's the idea of intentionality. 
that it's not hope that changes the way we love, it's our habits. It's not enough for me to hope that I'm a better husband to my wife. It's not, a, it's not enough to just say, hey, I hope I'm a better neighbor. No, it's the habits that we have in our lives that really define whether we love well. And here in Romans chapter 12, that's really what Paul is giving us. All these little moments, these little phrases, if you want to put them in a word, it's these little habits that Paul is giving us and saying, hey, here's the habits you need to have to love well. So how do we get there? What do those habits look like? What are the habits we need? And what does this second nature look like? We've said so far as a review that our second nature involves loving with authenticity and hating what's evil. It involves embracing honor, embracing others in honor, and rejecting passivity, lazy love. It, it, it's this idea of our second nature involves gaining perspective and giving generously. And then last week we talked about how it's not just to the people of God that we're supposed to love, the people of God or the people that are nice to us. It's also those that are, quite frankly, our enemies, people that hate us. Our second nature involves both disarming something and equipping something, disarming hostility and equipping empathy and opposing partiality and submitting in authority. And if you look at these, every one of these is a contrasting phrase, right? It's a contrasting thing. And today, I want us to continue to talk about this question. How do we love those that hurt us? How do we love people that are difficult to love? Now, I want participation here, okay? It's not a hard question. How many of you have people in your life that are difficult to love? Raise your hand. All right, stop pointing. No, no pointing, okay? It, it's not the person beside you. Maybe it is, but don't point them out, okay? But think about this. We all have people that are difficult to love. And if we were honest, the last two years, that number is probably multiplied, right? Like it, it, the whole COVID thing, what did it do? It forced us to be around people, some people, all the time, and forced us to stay away from other people all the time. And in the midst of COVID, in the midst of all that, I don't know about you, but my list, the list of people that are difficult to love has actually gotten a little bigger. Think about this. Two years ago, two years ago, I did not know a single person that was an expert in science. <laughs> not one. I didn't know a single person that was an expert in science. And, and here's the truth. Now everybody is. Right? I mean, we've watched three YouTube videos and we are informed. We know all there is to know about science. And what do these things do within us? They create opinions. They create positions. And really, it exponentially creates the opportunity for offense. I'm not saying you don't do your research, but here's what's happened. We live, we're living in the age of perpetual offense. We're living in a culture that says payback time. It's time for payback. Payback time. We're quick to get angry, we're quick to be offended, and we're quick to cancel someone. I didn't even know what that meant two years ago. 
But this is the age in which we live in, and God demands something different. So what does our second nature look like? I've got two little phrases I want you to think about this morning. Our second nature involves releasing something and also recovering something. It involves releasing and it involves recovering. What are we releasing? We're releasing our right to get even. And I want us to pick up here in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now these words are super easy to say, but let's be honest, this is difficult. What do we do when someone hurts us? What do we do when we feel the sting of offense and hurt and pain and suffering? What is our reaction? And and here's the truth. For all of us in this room, we have to kind of identify this. There is a huge spectrum of pain and a huge spectrum of hurt. You've got the spectrum down here on the very end that's going to be for some of you today when you go to the restaurant and the waiter doesn't get your order right. Right? I mean, we've all been there and we've all felt the hurt. As small as that is, we've all felt the hurt of that, and we felt the hurt, and we've maximized the pain, right? It's like, wow, we're talking about a chicken sandwich right now. Why are you so upset about this? Like, that's, that's not me talking to you. That's my wife talking to me, right? Okay, who, who, who am I kidding? I'm not eating a chicken sandwich. I'm eating steak. Anyway, <laughs> but we've all been there. We've been on the spectrum of getting hurt in that way, in a small way that we make maximize. But what's on the other spectrum? The other side of the spectrum of our pain is stuff that some of us have never even went through. Abuse. Like true hurt, true abuse, true pain, true suffering, abandonment, neglect, indifference. This is the spectrum of pain that we're talking about here. We're talking about the person that abused us as a child or maybe still abusing us all the way over here to the waiter that didn't get our order right. And it's interesting that every one of those hurts in between that, it, it, we all deal with it really three different ways. There are three basic reactions to our hurt and our pain. And the first one is this. The first reaction is revenge. It's the action of wrongdoing returned. It's the action of wrongdoing returned. Someone wrongs me, I'm going to wrong them. I'm going to return their wrong with interest, right? And we've been there, right? Someone hits me, I'm hitting them back and I'm hitting them harder. Revenge. It's the action of wrongdoing returned. And it's an action that a lot of us, that's how we react, right? The reaction of blessing the waiter out in the restaurant. The retaliation. All of these things. It's this revenge. And and this is what verse 17 is talking about. But it's also talking about this reaction. There's another reaction. How do you react when you're hurt? For some, it's the reaction of bitterness. Bitterness is the attitude 
It's not an action necessarily. It's the attitude of wrongdoing fantasized. When we are bitter, we fantasize about wrongdoing. In our minds, listen to this, we repeat the wrong that's been done to us. We repeat that. We replay it. We replay it over and over again. I can't believe they did that to me. And we think about what they did to us every single moment. And it's this thing playing out in our mind. We repeat this in our mind. But we also, we rehearse the wrongdoing we'd like to return. We rehearse not only what was done to us, we also rehearse what we want to do about it. And I'll tell you where this happens for me all the time. It always happens in the shower or right at the mirror when I'm brushing my teeth. Like this moment of, I need to say something, I'm going to say this, right? Or maybe you're in the car, you ever done this? You're in the car and you're, you're thinking about what you want to say, you know? Or maybe it's, it's writing the email and then erasing the email, right? We don't, here's the thing about bitterness. For a lot of us, we don't actually act on the bitterness. We just let it sit right here and right here and we just continue to replay it. And the scary thing about that reaction, the scary thing about it is you can be a person in here who is very bitter and maybe no one even knows it. Because you've hidden it so well. Maybe even the person that offended you doesn't really truly know it. And you're just allowing it to eat you up inside. Someone said that bitterness, I know you've heard this, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other guy to die. This is what bitterness is. And it's a reaction that many of us face. So you got revenge you have bitterness, and then you have the third reaction. And really, if you think about it, all hurt boils down to one of these three reactions. The last reaction is forgiveness. It's the action and the attitude. It's not just something you do. It's something you think. It's the action and attitude of wrongdoing canceled. Canceled. Repay, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable what is honorable in the sight of all. I was doing some research on this passage, and the word honorable, a lot of times you can substitute that word for the word beautiful. So listen, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is beautiful in the sight of all. What is beautiful? Now this is kind of an interesting thing when you think about this word, when you substitute that word. You know, we just were singing about the cross, right? Like we just sang uh, one of my favorite new songs right now, Son of Suffering. Wesley just did that song. And we're singing that loud and we're talking and we're singing and we're thinking about the cross, right? In fact, most churches have a cross somewhere on their premise, right? We've got one right here. And isn't it odd when you really start to think about it how, like for someone who's a non-believer, for someone who doesn't understand the cross, how odd it is that we use a cross as kind of a symbol for our people, for, for the family of God? It's not odd to us, those that know Christ, those that understand that, but to an outsider, that's a really weird thing. Why do we talk about the cross? Why do we sing about the cross as something that's beautiful? It's this word. What makes the cross beautiful is this word, forgiveness. 
because we understand what's at the cross. We understand that it's more than just a bloody cross. It's where our forgiveness sits. And this is what it's talking about here, that you will never be more like Christ than when you forgive someone, than when you forgive. And Jesus gives us an example of this. In Matthew 5, we talked about Matthew 5 last week, and I want to flesh this out again today. It's going to be here on the screen. You can read in your Bible or look here on the screen. But Matthew 5, Jesus kind of gives us an example of what it means to repay no one evil for evil. What it means to forgive instead of revenge and bitterness. And this is what he says in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now here's the thing. This is radical. Right? This is radical thinking. This is not just some cute phrase that you frame and you put on your toilet seat. Right? This is radical. These are red letter words of Jesus. And the question becomes, what is Jesus saying here? What is he saying here? What, how do we listen to this and read this? And how does this come into our lives and our world? Let me tell you what I think this does not mean. This does not mean justification for abuse. I don't believe it means that. I don't believe it, it's negating the, the virtue of self-defense. I don't think it's saying that. I don't think it's saying you can't protect someone else. In fact, if you remember, we're in Romans 12. If you go and read the very next chapter, Paul's going to lay out for us what the use of the government is, what authorities are all about, like police and all of them, like using, at times, even lethal force to keep the peace. So I don't believe it's talking about that. I also don't believe the other extreme where people think, well, here's what Jesus means by this. I'm going to give them this cheek. They're going to slap it. I'm going to give them this cheek. If they slap that cheek, I'm throat punching them. I don't think he's saying that either. What is it that Jesus is saying here? I feel like in order to understand this passage, we need to understand the time in which Jesus spoke this. And in some ways, kind of will humiliate us a little bit because Jesus didn't speak this in a free country democracy. Jesus spoke these words during the Roman occupation of Israel. So don't think uh, America 2022. Think more Germany 1940s. Occupation of a, a, a group of people that have occupied their country and have really infringed on every right that they have. And this is when Jesus is saying this. In some ways, it's even a worse situation. And this is what he's saying. And, and so I want you to kind of think of it in this way. Suppose you live during this time when Jesus says this. And suppose your occupation is you catch fish out of the Sea of Galilee And then you go and you eat those fish for your family and you also sell fish to make a living for your family. You are a fisherman in this time and you're out. Let's say you're out on the Sea of Galilee and you're out there all night. All night working hard. You're catching fish left and right. You're working hard to provide for your family, to be a blessing to other families. 
And you're there, and you're doing that, and you're, you're rowing your boat. It's been a great, great night, and you're rowing your boat up to the dock. And it's, you know, daybreak, the sun just came out. And you're, as you're rowing up to the dock, you see a little, wee little man standing on the end of the dock. And it's Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? Remember Zacchaeus before he met Jesus? What was he? He's a tax collector, right? So Zacchaeus is standing on the dock, and you know Zacchaeus. You know what he's all about. And you get there, and Zacchaeus says, Hey, partner, you mind if I come in on your boat and just see what you, what you got going on today? Okay. Zacchaeus gets on the boat, and he says, What'd you catch? You start showing him your fish, and you caught some, some red fish and some green fish. I feel like I'm in a Dr. Seuss book right now, but <laughs> you caught some fish. But, but here's the thing, you caught like a boatload of bluefish. Like the bluefish were biting last night, and you caught all kinds of bluefish. And so you show Zacchaeus your fish, and he gets this little grin on his face. And he says to you, oh, partner, you caught a lot of fish last night. It's just a shame because today, this Tuesday, Bluefish have to get taxed higher on Tuesdays. And in your head, you know, he's swindling me. But there's nothing you can do about it. And so, because you don't have the money to pay for all of those bluefish you caught, you're standing at the end of the dock with all your hard work for the night, and you're taking your bluefish, and you're tossing them back into the lake, into the Sea of Galilee. So you finish doing that, and you go stand in front of Zacchaeus. He's got Roman soldiers on both sides to enforce whatever's happening. And to add insult to injury, Zacchaeus takes the back of his hand and smacks you across the face. Now, you're a follower of Jesus. You were there at the Sermon on the Mount just days before when Jesus said these words. What do you do? What is your reaction to Zacchaeus? You see, I think for a lot of us, we've read these passages before, and we think this kind of doormat mentality of, of just when that kind of thing happens, we just kind of, we kind of, oops, we just kind of, we kind of whimper away. We kind of move away. We're passive. You know, we just, okay, okay, okay. See, I don't believe this is what Jesus is saying here. You don't shrink away. You activate this second nature that God's given you. And you get to a place where you can have, in that moment, compassion and forgiveness. And this is kind of weird to think about and, and even harder to do. But maybe the response to Zacchaeus needs to be this. After he does that. Zacchaeus, clearly you're having a bad day. Do you need to get any more out? Here's my other cheek. Now, here's the thing. What is that? That is radical thinking. It's not passive and it's not wimpy. It's not shrinking away and it's not doing nothing. No, it's doing something very intentional. It's a super intentional response. It's not revenge. It's not bitterness. But it's also not being passive. 
It's intentional forgiveness and unconditional love. And let me be honest, this is probably the hardest thing to do in that moment. That restraint would be difficult. But I believe this is what Jesus is saying to us when he says, repay no evil for evil. Don't repay evil for evil. It's releasing our right to get even. It's releasing our right to get even, and then it's also recovering peace. So we're releasing our right to get even, and we're recovering peace. Look back in Romans 12, 18, he says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. You know that word peace, it's, a, it's an elusive word, isn't it? I mean, when we think about what's going on right now in our world, the word peace has such an interesting context for us. Like I think about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and all that's happening there right now and this word peace kind of sits there. In fact, in some ways when we think about that, it kind of humiliates the hurt, some of the hurt that we're going through, right? Not all, but it, it kind of humiliates some of it. it. Like I can't imagine that there's people in Ukraine right now in a restaurant saying, I asked for no mayonnaise on this turkey sandwich. I doubt that's the conversations of hurt that they're having right now. Because they're on a whole nother spectrum over here. But peace is an elusive phrase. It's an elusive word. Actually, we were in a deacon's meeting the other night. And our vice chairman, uh, Jim Barr, he kind of gave us a devotional on peace. And uh, just very insightful stuff. But one thing he said that just really stuck out to me. And it's nothing new, but man, it's powerful. That we will never have full peace until Jesus comes. Like, that's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to the time when Jesus comes and restores everything. But because of the broken world we find ourselves in, being offended is unavoidable. Being offended is unavoidable. You're not going to escape the pain of offense and hurt, even if you choose peace. So when it says live peaceably here, it's not saying just avoid being offended. Avoid be You're not going to avoid it. It's going to come find you. Being offended is unavoidable, but living offended is a choice. Living offended is a choice. You don't have to live offended. You can choose peace with people. And this is what's so hard about this passage, because just because you choose peace doesn't mean they choose peace. There are no guarantees to peace. Look at verse 18 again. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Listen to the first part of that. If possible, so far as it depends on you. It's implied that there will be, there will be people in your life that you will not get along with. And you can't help being offended by them. But you can help, you can choose to not live offended. Matthew 5, 9 calls us peacemakers. Are you a peacemaker? Are you a person that seeks peace? Or do you always seek to look for the offense? Like here's the thing, if you want to be offended, you can always find a way to be offended. 
but we're not living in offense. We're not living offended. So our second nature involves these two things. It involves this idea of really recovering peace in our relationships. But our second nature also involves surrendering and even provoking. We're surrendering something and we're provoking something. And here's where we go with this. Surrendering. What are we surrendering? We're surrendering to God's justice. God's justice. Look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now we hear this verse, and the reason it's so hard for us to get our minds around this is that when we do this, it feels like that person's getting off the hook, doesn't it? It feels like, oh, if I do this, they're just going to get off the hook. And God's not going to do what needs to be done. And we've even tried to listen to this and think about, okay, how do we do this? Like, surrender is not a fun word. And many times we've, our culture has even tried to put a positive spin on this idea of surrender and hurt. It's funny, there's a, there's a man who is Oprah's life coach. Okay, Oprah's life coach. His name is Mastin Kipp. And Mastin Kipp said this about hurt. He said, surrender to the moment and accept that whatever is happening in the moment, the universe is working on your behalf. What a load of garbage. <laughs> garbage. Think about this. This is what pop psychology is trying to teach us. And listen, I was a psych major. I'm not busting all psych. But what I am saying is this. They're saying that healing comes through reliving and redefining the moment. We just need to redefine what that moment of hurt was for you. But here's the truth. There are some hurts. Listen. There are some hurts that you will face that you will never understand. Not here on earth. There are some things in your life that when you look at that hurt, that moment of hurt, you're never going to be able to redefine it. You're never going to be able to understand it. It's not a moment that we're surrendering to because let's be honest, nothing about the moment brings help and healing. We're not surrendering to a moment of hurt but to a master of healing. It's taking our real pain not back to a moment but to the one who can heal our pain. And it's laying it at his feet, trusting that he will know what to do. Trusting that what he's going to do is best. We're not, we might not ever understand our hurt. We might not ever understand why we went through the things we go through and why they continue to hurt us the way they continue to hurt us. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Is like, listen, just come lay that at my feet. I'm not saying you're going to get answers. At least not on this side of earth. But one day you will. But it's this idea of leaving it with Jesus. So we're surrendering to God. We're surrendering to his justice. And then this last point that I really want to spend the majority of my time is we're provoking something. We're provoking heart change. We're provoking heart change. Look at verse 20. Instead of repaying evil for evil, instead of all of that, you're going to be a, peace, a peacemaker. Instead of trying to get vengeance yourself, 
You're going to leave it in God's hands, and then this is what you're going to do. To the contrary, verse 20, instead of revenge and instead of bitterness, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. The goal here, the goal here is not to provoke an act of war with someone. And the goal here is not, to, is not to provoke a cold war with someone. You know the difference? You know those people that you're around or maybe you see this play out in your friend circles where these two people, if you get them in the same room, they're going to fight like cats and dogs. We're not provoking that. We're not starting that. We're also not starting the kind of people around in this room or maybe in your friend circles that literally you haven't talked to someone in 20 years. Because you got this cold war going on with them. This secret thing that you're just not going to talk to them. We're not talking about this kind of provoking. We're saying this, that God desires, through these verses, God desires that we provoke heart change. Heart change in the person that's offended us. Jesus shows us what this looks like in Matthew 5. In verse 40, let's pick it up. It says, if anyone would sue you, And take your tunic and let them have your cloak as well. Let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone, verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, some of you know this little little context, but those of you that don't, this, this is a very intentional thing that Jesus is saying. During this time the Roman occupation, they had what was called the law of impressment. The law of impressment. And what it was is this. A soldier could require you to transport his possessions up to one mile. So think about this for just a minute. You're, you're out with your family. Let's say you're having a nice day. It's the Sabbath and you're out at the Sea of Galilee. You're just kind of sitting out, maybe having a little picnic with your family, you know, enjoying your time and a Roman platoon walks by, a soldier platoon walks by, and this Roman just barks orders at you and says, hey, carry my stuff. Come on, come on. Yeah, get your kid too. Come on, y'all can carry this stuff for us. By law, law of impressment, you're required to carry their stuff for a mile. So doesn't matter what your day's got going on, doesn't matter. It's interrupted right there in that moment. So you can imagine carrying that stuff, and, and we know that, you know, the average mile is about 2,000 steps. So can you get this picture in your head? This happened all the time, right? So that Jewish person carrying the stuff, what happened when they hit 2,001 step, right? Mile marker one. What do you think happened? Like, just throw it down, right? Like, all right, I'm done, and walk off huffing and puffing, right? Like, nobody would want to do this. But think about this. This is what Jesus is saying here. He's, he's, imagine if you're a follower of Jesus and you've heard these words and you're walking. And that whole mile, you're probably getting all kinds of like smack talk from the Roman soldiers, right? They're probably talking trash about you while you're carrying it. They're probably ridiculing you. And then you get to step 2,000. And you're just continuing to walk. What do you think is going in the mind of that soldier at that time? I bet, I bet he gets a little quiet. Because in his mind, he's trying to figure out, okay, did he just miscount? No, he's going even further. Like, 
He's still walking. What is going on here? Think of the discomfort that puts on that soldier. Jesus continues, verse 42, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, again, we have to consider this in context. What is Jesus saying here? I have a three-year-old that begs me for stuff 24-7. Do I just say to him, okay, give to the one who asked. Here you go. Or what if someone came up to me after the gathering today and said, the Lord told me for you to give me uh, your house. I need the deed to your house. Now, the Lord could reveal that to me too, but chances are you're not getting the deed to my house. I'm sorry. Or or what about about the person who's abused children, who comes up and asks, hey, can I work in the pre-K department? Give to the one who asks. Clearly, clearly Jesus is meaning something here. Jesus isn't in the dark here. He knows all these kinds of complex issues that will arise, and yet he still says this to us. So what is Jesus saying here? God has given us the second nature, this second nature, along with his spirit to help us discern what is the best loving thing to do. And for some of us in this room, the minute I started talking, because we're those, you know, American middle class, we like to get off the hook of stuff. And for some of you already, you're thinking, oh, good, Jonathan's let me off the hook of this passage. But when Jesus says these words to us, he's hitting our heart with them. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give to the one who asks. He's saying this should be our default response. And you can tell in a second the kind of person who's trying to weasel their way out of the words of Jesus here. We are called to love in such a way that it provokes heart change in people. And how do we do that? By being a continual blessing to those who are a continual problem. By being a continual blessing to those who are a continual problem. Look at what happens when we do this. Verse 20, the last part of it says, For by doing so... You will heap burning coals on his head. It's funny. In my younger days, in my immature youth, I'm still in, there's still areas in my life I'm immature in. But earlier on in my life, I remember reading this verse, and this is what I remember thinking. I'm going to love that person so much, I'm going to set them on fire. Right? I mean, it's like this, uh, like, yeah, I'm going to love you. I'm going to kill you with kindness. I'm going to set you on fire. Right? Because that's kind of what the verse kind of looks like. But this was actually an Egyptian culture. And what it was is it was a custom where a person would carry coals on his head if they were feeling shame or inner conflict in their lives. And so God is giving us insight here into the heart of the offender that when we show forgiveness, it stirs something up in them. What brings, think about this, what brings the most inner conflict to the offender, and the most freedom to the offended. Out of those three reactions, what brings the most inner conflict to the offender and the most freedom to the offended? Is it revenge? Is that the one that does it? Is it bitterness? Or is it forgiveness? There was a man several years ago named Gary Ridgway. And Gary Ridgway was a serial killer. 
he murdered 48 women. And at his trial, the families of these 48 women were allowed to speak directly to Gary Ridgway. And as they spoke, stone-faced the entire time. Like, literally, they were slandering them. They were telling him they hope he rots in hell. They were calling him an animal. They were saying all of these things against him. They were fighting through tears and angst, and you could just see the frustration on the families. And he didn't break. Like, he just stone-faced, listening, hardened criminal. Until one particular father takes the stand. I want you to watch this. Mr. Ridgway, um, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've, you've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, and that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. Are we forgiving people? Paul closes this little section of love habits with these words. Do not be overcome by evil. Don't let the darkness of revenge and bitterness take you out. But overcome evil with good. The power of forgiveness can change your life and may very well change the life of the person that's offended you. Choosing forgiveness is the intentional decision to let it go and get over it. Now, I, I, I just, the minute I say that, I feel the uh. Because I know, like when we hear those words, how insensitive does that sound? Just let it go. Just get over it. But here's what I mean by that. These phrases aren't meant for us to pretend like it didn't happen. I, I want to honestly, in a way, I want to redeem these two phrases. I want to redeem what they mean for just a minute. Forgiveness is let it go. It means Letting go of revenge and bitterness. It's releasing the right to get even. It's releasing uh, all of that. It's not surrendering to a moment of hurt, but a master of healing. It's not living offended. We're going to get offended, but we don't have to live there. It's letting it go, and it's getting over it. What are we getting over? We're getting over the trap of unforgiveness. We're not necessarily getting over what, what we went through. It's not saying that our experience wasn't real, wasn't hurtful. But what we're saying is I am not going to live at this trap of unforgiveness. I am going to rise above it. Because it is a trap. I was watching a movie uh, this week. And it was about Henry V. I, I never knew this story, but it's a historical fiction movie. And I was watching this movie. It was about Henry, King Henry V. And he was actually in a war uh, with his opponent, the French. And they were actually at the war. And he comes to a battle. The battle was called, called Agincourt. Agincourt was the name of the battle. And he comes to this battle. And he's outnumbered. 
And his enemy is up on the hill. And so you know what he does? It's very smart. It had rained the night before, and the ground in the valley was, was wet. And so the way he won this battle was he lured the enemy, he lured the other people off of the hill down into the valley with him. And when he got down in the valley with them, when they got down into the valley, they just started producing mud. Like the grass turned to mud really quick. And it said, like you can go read this historical account, it said that many of the soldiers, because the Frenchmen were completely suited up in full suits of armor, it was said that many of those French soldiers actually drowned in their own uh, armor because they couldn't, they couldn't get a footing. And I really think about, I think for some of us, man, we live in this bog of unforgiveness just like that. That we come down into the valley and we get in the mix and the mess of all of that fighting and we drown in our own armor. I mean, God's calling us to get over the trap of unforgiveness, to get above that, to see that for what it is. It's not, it's not negating our hurt. It's not negating justice. It's not negating uh, that we, do. it's not saying we have to trust that person. But what it is saying is we're not going to live in that trap any longer. We're not going to be consumed with the muck and mire of unforgiveness. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. How are you doing at loving people you know it's easy to love the ones that love us it's easy to want to love the ones that don't offend us but how are you loving the people that hurt you it's convicting for us right it's convicting for us to think about the restaurant and giving the waiter a hard time but some of us have felt severe hurts Stuff much worse than a wrong order. How are we loving those people? Are we to a place yet where we can give out forgiveness the way Jesus has called us to give it? I'm praying. I'm praying that God would open up my heart in this area. I'm praying God would open up your heart, that God wants to provoke heart change, not just in you. He wants to use you as a minister of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about this, a minister of reconciliation, that people would be reconciled to God through the way you live your life. So are we loving people well? Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that you would just use this message, Lord, in my life, in each of our lives, Lord, that there are no limits to our forgiveness. There are no limits to our forgiveness. There shouldn't be. God, because you've forgiven us, we can forgive others. Lord, help us to love people well and to activate this incredible second nature that you've placed in each believer in this room. Father, we pray these things in your name.